HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box and Clover, working together to provide restaurants with even more technology for a better hospitality experience. Visit getbento.com better to learn more. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I'm sure everyone is just glued to their AirPods, listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. There's so much out there happening right now in terms of food tech. People are interested in it more than ever, both from a personal, nutritional, family, what's for dinner kind of point of view, and also from a what's happening in my environment, what's happening with the world and global warming point of view. So often than not, money is how we express what's important to us. Money is how we express what we think is good. Every time someone goes to a grocery store, every time you go to the grocery store and you buy something, you say with your dollars that you think that's a good product and you want to eat that and take it home. Similarly, when people decide to not buy products because they don't like something about it, they're making decisions about what our supermarket and grocery looks like, and also what perhaps the world around us looks like as well. On a personal level, we vote with our dollars, the things we want to see in our refrigerators and on our tables, and the things we want to see in the world. We vote with our dollars for how we want companies to operate and what types of mission and products and purposes we want to support. It happens every day on a personal level. It's also happening every day on a much bigger, larger corporate level, funding level, banking level. Sure, we follow the stock market, but that doesn't necessarily sometimes seem to have anything to do with us on our day-to-day and what we have for dinner. But in the food tech space, investment is critical. Investment is critical to starting a business, keeping it alive, getting it to the place where you can produce something, get the results you want, and try and make that better product, better place in the world. We talked a lot about funding on this show since we started Tech Bytes in January of 2015. How do you get it? Who gets it? What's important? And how do people who have control over the funding make those decisions? 
So today we're going to take a look at funding from a very interesting point of view, a company called The Production Board, located out on the West Coast. If you want to follow along online and take a look at them while we are having this conversation, you can find them online at tpb.co. So joining us today from The Production Board, we have Bharat Vasan, who is President and Chief Operating Officer. Thank you for calling us. Are you out on the West Coast currently? I am indeed calling in for Monterey today. Oh, that's lovely. Is it beautiful? I have a beautiful beachy blue sky kind of image of Monterey. Is that accurate? Totally. The seals, the little buoys. The whole thing, the all of it. Tourists, the whole thing, yeah. Very cinematic. Is that true or is that just in my mind's eye? No, it's true. It's like Maine for the West Coast. Fantastic. We have Rachel Conrad calling in from London. She's out there for the future food tech event. She's the Chief Brand Officer at the Production Board. Rachel, thanks for calling in. You're welcome. I would subject you to my fake British accent, but I don't want to make anybody wince. It must be a really interesting time to be in London. I mean, not just because of Food Future Tech, but because of um, you know the passing of the monarchy. Oh, absolutely. The, um, the the queen's death and the funeral procession has really, really uh, created a big shadow over the entire city. And every little fountain and royal statue is covered in letters, like little love letters from kids and bouquets of flowers. It's, it's really, really charismatic. And even though the two are not related, something as monumental for a country as that and you know, certainly ripple effects in the world. Is that having any impact on food future tech or no, or um, just sort of the, the traffic of getting from one point to another is just enhanced, or maybe people are having different kind of cocktail chatter than they usually would. I think that uh, there have been a lot of people who've had to change flights due to the Queen's funeral procession. That's very clear, including me. I'm lucky I made it in on time. Uh, but uh, but in general, no, the, the conversation here is really, really focused on funding, including the current, I would say, difficulties in the venture funding market, but also the long-term promise. Um, you know, Future Food Tech is a really unusual event in that I would say roughly half to maybe 60% of participants are very new, shiny startups. And then 40 to 50% are big incumbents who are keen to learn more, maybe think about acquisitions, JDAs, joint development agreements, and, and other things together. But the thing that I keep noticing here is that the two groups, the startups and the incumbents, I mean, sometimes literally speak a different type of language, use different vocabulary. They almost, in many instances, seem at odds with each other. There's a little bit of a, of a rivalry, a little bit of animosity almost. And um, interestingly, at the production board, I mean, we're, we're really here to, to connect the dots, including to um, you know, um, incumbents as as partners, as you know, strategic advisors, et cetera. So it's been a really interesting time to be here. Well, certainly, people who work in finance and investing—that's you know—that's its own science and math, and has its own understanding and vocabulary. And certainly, somebody who's developing technology in a science space and is really deep in their practice, I can imagine people talking at a high level about what they do and what's of interest to them and lots of people not really understanding what exactly they're talking about, which is part of the fun of this show where we try and 
deconstruct a little bit and demystify some of those things. Also calling in from the production board, we have Risa Stack, who is a general manager. Uh, thank you for calling, Risa. Where are you located geographically right now in the world? Uh, I am in San Francisco. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So how is San Francisco? Is it, are you experiencing summertime in San Francisco? It is our summer. It's 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 a sunny and in the balmy uh, upper sixties. That's which is uh, what our weather usually is like out here. It's quite nice. Lovely. I am based in New York City, home base for Heritage Radio Network. Our studio is in Bushwick, Brooklyn, at Inside Roberta's Pizza. Unfortunately, I am not there today, but I will be back in studio soon. The thing that struck me about the production board that's very interesting is. Two, actually two things. One, like so many of the food tech products that we have on this show, the founders are interested in really the environment and the earth and what's happening right now and what can be changed towards a positive, more sustainable direction. Everything from plant-based milk and ice cream to imagining a different type of burger most of those founders are not food people. They're not necessarily motivated by, you know, making a better sandwich. They're more science environmental people who are interested in changing the course of what's happening in the environment now. And in order to do that, people have turned to food because it is something that everybody needs and consumes. And so much of the food process from farm to table have a real environmental impact. So the production board is primarily interested in reimagining earth and systems of production across agriculture and health and science and things like that. And the result of some of them is food. But let's go back for just a moment. And Bharat, maybe you can tell us why is this the underlying or the overarching mission of an investment group? Reimagining the earth. It's not very financy to Rachel's point. <laughs> no, and you know, maybe that reflects, you know, TPB as a group of, you know, I think we think of ourselves as builders, you know, and the goal is to build a better world and build things that are the future we were promised, not the kind of the present we have. And so many of the theses we come up with are theses where we think about, hey, what would the world, first principles, should it look like? How should energy be made? How should food be made? Um, you know, should the future of food distribution be changed? And then we try and build businesses from scratch that try and fulfill that objective. Um, we do the research, we look into the science, we take some of the breakthroughs that are happening and figure out, should that be a company? And that's where the art comes in of translating something that some brilliant scientists someplace in the world has uncovered and figuring out, is that something that can be a company that could change the world? There are so many questions. We could spend the entire uh, podcast just sort of unpacking that summary, I think. <laughs> How do you define better world? I mean, that's sort of, it's a, it's a very broad, but also very lofty sounding goal, better world. What does that, what does that mean? Absolutely. Um, so we start with things that are objective, right? Um, people shouldn't go hungry. People shouldn't go cold. And um, when it comes, and since this pod is about food, we think a lot about how do we feed the planet in a way that doesn't completely destroy it. Um, I'll let Rachel chime in 
um, in a little bit. But a lot of our theses have to do with how do we build all the things that human beings want to consume and how do we do that more efficiently? How do we do that with a lower environmental impact? At the same time, expanding the amount of choice. It's not just a, hey, here's what you used to have before and here's something that's not quite as good, but it's better for the environment, so you should do it. And we see that trend across the food tech space where people, whether it's new kinds of milk or it's new kinds of you know replacement for beef or egg protein, those are the kinds of things that we look at and say, hey, that should exist in the world. And that's something that TPB should build, other people should build. Uh, it's something that folks who are not from the ag and food space should join the fight on. And that's sort of the better role that we imagine. So in that case, though, are you looking to create completely new kinds of business and companies and ventures across sort of the food production and distribution chain? Or are you looking to fix or adjust things that already exist? Are you starting from scratch on everything? Sort of like, let's imagine nothing exists and we can do whatever we can, or what would you do if you could do anything idea? Or are you looking at what is in place right now? Because there's a huge system in place right now globally. And certainly we've talked a lot about how it is dysfunctional and broken on this show, but there are also pockets of pieces of it that do work. Yeah, a little bit of both is the, is the short answer. You know, there, there are sectors where there's core innovation that isn't going to come from the incumbent sector. As Rachel said, it's a completely different language they speak. And then there are things like distribution of that food uh, that make a lot of sense, that are done very, very efficiently today that you can leverage. So I don't think it's a binary thing. I think you've got two really good things speaking different languages. And I think the, the trick is to figure out how do they get to speak the same language and serve a common purpose. So that is, is um, I would wonder how you call down a list of things to do or a list of issues or problems to attack. Like what's the sliding, what's the sliding scale of triage of like, this is the most important thing because there are so many things that you could be taking a look right. at globally. I mean, it's, it's almost um, overwhelming to think about how you would even start. I know, you know, TPB is one, one company. It's hard for us. It's, we're not trying to solve every problem in the world, but we do do a lot in food and ag particularly. Uh, and there we look at, is there some core innovation someplace, some new scientific discovery, some new application of technology in a very, very large market that could be disruptive to that market? Do we have the right team members to build that business? Are they excited about that mission over time? And then we work on, you know, how would this go to market? Is that in partnership with others? Is it directly? And, you know, I want Rachel to chime in here because she has such great experience doing this, not just at TPB, but at other places as well. Yeah, I'm happy to chime in. I mean, Jennifer and I have talked at length, including on the podcast, about my career. I get questions a lot when I'm at these kind of future food tech events where people say, how did you go from Tesla to Impossible Foods to now, you know, a, a financial company doing venture foundry work? I mean, these are huge jumps into completely different industries. 
And I actually don't see it that way at all. I have, since 2008, the first time I met Elon, the first time I started working at Tesla, I have worked at very, very powerful decarbonization technology companies. And, you know, Impossible and Tesla are really leveraging the sort of consumer demand for profit system to displace functions in our society, including the way we power our cars and how we eat and perceive meat to to really, um, you know, disrupt and 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 um, decarbonize. I mean, Dave Friedberg, the founder and CEO of the production board is doing the same thing. I would argue he is leveraging capitalism itself in the most powerful way to invest in and dramatically influence the accelerated movement towards sustainable systems of production. And you do that by deploying capital, by starting companies, um, by you know, taking powerful seats on important boards that can really do that. And I mean, Dave... It's a huge amount of power to wield on the world from just a small number of people. Elon Musk is, a, is such an interesting person. And when we talk about his reach and what he's done and how he's impacted the world, and you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, people vote with their dollars. And we do that every day on a very small personal level. We're talking about changing the world and, and a few people making decisions about what they think the best course forward is. Do you require the public to sort of agree with you and concur? Or is it, I suppose you do at some point because it becomes a, a, a product on the market and people need to buy it to sustain it and then switch over to it for it to become um, impactful in the environment like cars. We all need to start driving electronic cars for that to be really, truly worthwhile. We all need to switch from having animal burgers to having plant fermented non-animal burgers for that to work. It's exciting. Is it concerning or no, or just the way the world is? I mean, I, I would really resist this false mythology that there are a couple of people determining the shift to a sustainable world. Ultimately, it's 7 billion people as you open the show, Jennifer, voting with their dollars or pounds or yen or whatever every single day. And, and so there are certain people who might benefit, profit more over the long term, but it's because they've hit the right chord with consumers, right? By the way, the reason that you buy a Tesla or an Impossible Burger isn't just because it's sustainable, right? It's it's frankly because it in the case of a Tesla, it's faster, safer, better user interface, etc. The fact that you can power it from solar panels is this incredible brand halo and bonus. In the case of Impossible and and many other products that are on the market that I'm just trying for the first time here in London, it's because they taste better, they're better for you, and they have competitive price points. Um, that's why you buy it, right? And and it's the same case with with finance, right? If you are if you are investing in companies that people and the market don't fundamentally want, it really doesn't matter how sustainable they are. Um, they need to be much more efficient and represent a fundamental 
upgrade for the users. That's how we decarbonize. We create better products that also happen to be much more efficient, lower carbon land energy. We did an interesting show earlier this year um, about... And I was just, I was just uh, really struck by a press release that I got, in all honesty, because it was completely antithetical to all of the ones that I get. There's a, a man named Jason Karp who started a company called Human Co. And if you eat um, organic chocolate, you might know Hue Chocolate, H-U Chocolate. There was a restaurant at one point that was about that. And he's one of these people who had a journey of personal health where he had some health issues and he turned to food and really started his journey in terms of like organic and sustainability and the environment and really got interested and involved in all those things. And he, his company, Human Co., purchased a very much loved um, vegan sort of ice cream business called Coconut Bliss. And they added cow dairy ice cream to it, which is unheard of. Typically right now, what we see in the space is people are moving away from animal-based products and moving into vegan or non-animal products for many of the reasons that you just articulated, Rachel. And I was so fascinated by that as an idea because obviously there was like backlash from a lot of the loyal customers who didn't understand what was happening. And his take on it was, and it's a great episode. It's, it's very interesting. It's episode 261. Um, his, his rationale was 97% of ice cream sold in the United States is dairy. And he didn't think that people were going to ultimately change over a hundred percent. So he thought the idea was to make a dairy ice cream that aligned with all of the important principles he thought that needed to be taken care of. So that's why he did that. And it was just a fascinating idea to me, um, and very different from many of the founding point of view, the point of views of many of the founders who are moving away from these traditional traditional businesses into new kinds of things. I mean, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. And this is honestly, I've spent the last five years of my life as chief communications officer at Impossible Foods dealing with this. Um, I call it the, you know, vegan perfectionism, right? If if you are not absolutely perfect, you are ostracized and you get kicked out of the vegan club, right? You can eat a fully plant-based diet. And if you show up to an event wearing leather shoes, oh my God, there's a huge debate on Twitter. Is she vegan enough, right? You can never win any contest like that. Nobody can. Nobody is perfect, right? And and so it's really interesting because the phenomenon that you describe with Jason, whose products are great, by the way, is you know one of heresy. He was someone who a certain cohort of people thought was really in the in the fray, in the mix, and then he did something that actually for the greater good might have been right, but he is now heretical. He is seen as an apostate, right? And and you see this quite a bit. We saw it a lot at Impossible Foods. I see it throughout conferences like Future Food Tech and ultimately we need a lot of forgiveness and we need a lot of people doing the right thing, um, even if it's not 100% correct. There's no perfect path here. Well, I think one of the difficult things is always deciding what the right thing is. But I'll tell you this. One thing I know absolutely the right thing is, is to be a supporter 
of Heritage Radio Network. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our members, many of whom are listeners like you. Grants and underwriters like this one. Stay with us. Exciting news for restaurants. Bento Box and Clover have teamed up to provide even more technology for a better hospitality experience. With over 70% of diners researching restaurants online before they go in person, a strong digital presence is more important than ever. Bento Box's website, marketing tools, and commerce platform help restaurants get discovered online, make more money, and engage diners in person and virtually. And Clover's world-class POS and payment system streamlines daily operations for a totally seamless experience. With Bento Box and Clover working together, restaurants now have an all-in-one solution that makes it easy to deliver better hospitality from the kitchen to tableside and beyond. Bento Box and Clover, the right recipe for hospitality. Visit getbento.com better to learn more. That's getbento.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is out in California at a group called the Production Board. If you want to check them out online, tpb.co. It is a foundry investment group that is taking a look at agriculture and food, human health, life science, and biomanufacturing to try and reimagine how all these different industries work in the world to sort of reimagine a better world environmentally, which makes it a better place for us to live, which theoretically makes it a better life for all of us. Talking with us today is Rachel Conrad, who's the Chief Brand Officer. Um, you may recognize her voice from episode 248 about food tech investment. Um, it's a very interesting episode if you want to go back and listen to that after this one. We also have Bharat Vasan, who is the President and Chief Operating Officer, and Risa Stack, who is General Manager. And it's there's so much complexity in all of these things. It's, it's very difficult to sort of unpack them in really small, simple, conversational bites. Um, but I think Rachel made a very salient point at the beginning of the show. She's at Food Future Tech in London right now. She talked about the language of finance and the language of, you know, science and environmentalists and, and, and innovators and startups being two different or multiple different languages. And Risa, I would love to have your take on all this because you actually have background in science and finance, which puts you probably in a, in a very uniquely capable position to sort of evaluate all these moving parts. Oh, uh, that's true. And, I, and I'd like to think so. So um, I have a PhD in immunology, but as uh, quickly after I finished my PhD, I spent, I went to the business side, spending a couple of years in private equity, but then really moved on to what I love to do, which is, is to start companies. And I think you make a really good point, Jennifer. It's sometimes when you're starting companies, which are generally solving what you think is a problem, um, and the finance world doesn't necessarily understand the language because you're starting with a very basic problem, i.e. how to feed more people um, with less resources or less money, and they're looking for very specific markets and products. And, and as you start to build the company or, and you start to bring 
bring out your idea, you then can be more specific and speak the language of finance. Because a lot of times in the early stage, we're talking ideas, science, and then we have to get to products and markets. And I think that's where you often see a disconnect. So founder investment is a little bit different. And I was saying at the first half of the show, the TPB hones in on an idea or a problem to solve and then starts looking at how a company can coalesce around research or a process or something that's being invented and how you build a company around that to sort of forward that idea. How is foundry investment then different creating the idea of a company versus traditional sort of venture and startup investment, which we've talked about on this show, which is I have a great idea and I'm going to go out and look for people to fund it. Yeah. So, so I think that, um, uh, so when you have a great idea and you're looking for people to fund it, you are a entrepreneur looking for financial backing. Um, and there are many great entrepreneurs and there are many great businesses that have been built or being, being built. But sometimes when you, when you want to just start from a clean sheet of paper, like I think as you outlined earlier, we're thesis driven. We look at the problems within the different segments of um, ag and food, bioprocessing and life sciences. And we think through that problem and, uh, and try and understand how it can be solved. So we are in, in essentially acting as the entrepreneur. That doesn't mean if along the way we find an amazing entrepreneur who's already trying to focus on the same problem or solve the same problem with the business, that doesn't mean what we wouldn't um, work with that entrepreneur. But um, we think there's a multitude of problems that need to be solved. And sometimes they're not being addressed by existing entrepreneurs or existing businesses. And so you just need to start from scratch. It's an interesting idea. Um, and I think you're describing it as TPB being the entrepreneur and then sort of coming up with the idea for the thing or the product or the process. And then in very, very simple terms, staffing that company or staffing that startup with the different people and components and resources you would need to then start to bring it to life through the different stages of a, of a new company. I, I would love to have a point of view just in terms of how it fits into that storyline of foundry investment and how it's different from other types of investing. Um, just a quick thumbnail on Supergut. Supergut is a company we talked about in the last episode of Tech Bytes. It's episode 271. Supergut is a prebiotic and gut microbiome product. Um, the we talked with Mark Washington. It's a great episode, and he's very, very passionate about what he does. And I mean, notably, there was just, um, I mean, I love it when this happens. Yesterday, an article in the Washington Post about how important your gut microbiome is and like what you need to eat in terms of probiotics and prebiotics to keep your gut microbiome healthy. Um, and it has a lot of great information in it. So in, in terms of the idea of like super gut, just because it's something that our listeners are certainly familiar with now, how does that, how does, how did that process unfold in terms of, you know, running it along the foundry process? So let's see, super gut and another company we have pattern ag, I think came out of this very similar, um, concept of the fact that you have this consortia of microbes and they exist in your gut and they also exist in the soil and how they interact um, informs what you can grow in the soil 
And in a human being, it also affects, um, you know, all sorts of things about um, appetite, blood sugar regulation, all sorts of health effects. And so our core thesis was, can we understand that concept of this, this consortium of microbes a little bit better for the human being? And there was lots and lots of scientific research that had come out around how this affects everything from appetite to mood to your immune system functioning well. And super gut came out of this thesis that, hey, if could we feed your gut the right kinds um, of stuff for you to have, you know, a consortia that helps your, your body function properly? And so we came up with the idea. We looked through the research at TPB. We partnered with Mark. Uh, Mark was really excited, and he came from the human health, human fitness space. He was really excited about this. And I think that's an important, important point to pause on because it's not just an idea that exists in a vacuum. It also needs an entrepreneur, someone who's willing to drive it, be excited about it. And Mark is very much that kind of person. And so it's a combination of those things, people who are willing to be in service of and a great idea that can change outcomes uh, that come together. And that was super gut, but it's also very similar for Pattern Ag, where we thought a lot about the world relies on all this fertilizer to feed plants. Gee, can we understand the composition of microbes in the soil that produce different kinds of nutrients or convert stuff for plants? And if we do that, can we use less fertilizer? Can, we, can farmers use that data to um, put the right inputs into their crops, reducing costs for them, but also resulting in higher yield outcomes. So we're not just spray and pray type of thing. It's a interesting idea on the super gut side that you found somebody like Mark, who is not only extremely passionate about what he does, but he has a very personal connection to the idea of helping people live better through health because of um, some health issues that he had in his family and, and ultimately um, some health issues that were uh, mortal. It also He also represents sort of a, a different demographic in terms of wanting to close the inequities of, you know, health and wellness and the disparities of, you know, disease and health in different pockets of the country and societally and economically. When you think about investing when you think about building these different companies top line there's the earth and how it works the globe but then going down there's also so many layers societally in terms of just you know the number of billions of people who need to eat to live on this planet then you drill down through different countries through different cities through different economic strata through different demographics do those sort of societal inputs impact how you decide what you're going to build and also who runs it? They do. Um, I think for us, we, you know, we really look at, I think one of our core beliefs, let me put it this way. I think one of our core beliefs is you have to build something that people want. And when it comes to what people want, there's an enormous amount of diversity in terms of how people perceive things, um, geographies, different cultures, different subcultures. And I can't think of many things that are more universal than food that have all those nuances built in. And I think what's exciting for TPB, and I think we're privileged to work in the food space, is to be able to think about products that impact so many different types of cultures and so many different types of people. 
And as we think about who should run these businesses, it really, the energy really comes from someone. It's not like we pick people, it's more people volunteer and we have this idea and they're excited about that idea. And, and that really is the core of, I think, any entrepreneur investor partnership. And it's also the core, I think, of any great company that takes, you know, many, many years to build and make real. Yeah, I think one of the important things is, as as you've outlined both um, Jennifer and Brad, it's, uh, you have you ultimately find the right entrepreneur, but in the process of exploring an idea uh, for a business, you really, um, you talk to a lot of people and, and you build a community around that. And through that community, um, as you are, are trying to figure out whether this is a good idea or not, you often get advisors, you, the entrepreneur often emerges from that community. I mean, I think in the, um, in the case of uh, Supergut, we went out and we talked to a lot of people about our idea and that's how we found Mark and how Mark, you know, Mark was the right person to lead the business, but we also created uh, we've other advisors to the business and, and built a sense of community, which then you continue to build off as you build your business. And so I think that's a very important part of building businesses is, is building out networks of people who are like-minded, which can then take a business forward. And those people play very different roles and they may become management, they may become advisors, they may become, uh, may become evangelists. But I think all this is when you want to change behavior, you have to have create a movement, so to speak. Creating a movement. We love that for sure. It's interesting how many movements are created around food and the environment, especially right now. It's, um, I'll tell you, one of the things that I just can't seem to get away from is non-animal proteins. I mean, my inbox is flooded every day with so many um, animal alternative protein types, everything from you know, not chicken nuggets to milk to ice cream to dairy, down to things that happen in laboratories and that are base ingredients for other products. You know, sort of imagine going down the baking aisle in your supermarket. If you wanted to bake a loaf of bread, you would have, you know, all the flours, you would have different types of yeast, you would have salt, you would have all those things. Well, imagine if you're going to make a non-animal plant-based chicken nugget, what that cooking aisle would look like in terms of the ingredients you would need. It's um, really building a completely other set of, you know, ingredients and, and ideas from the ground up. Um, which leads me to a company called Triple Bar, which you all are working with, which has a lot of really future science sounding types of things on the website, which we love, you know, talking about the future today, sort of, you know, I mean, I think at heart, everybody loves future ideas, you know, sort of the World's Fair and the Jetsons and things like that, you know, the future is now. Um, I, it's difficult for me to even articulate what um, Triple Bar does, because it is so intensely scientific. It's bioengineering. It's looking at how things replicate and produce, you know, quickly at hyperspeed and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, um, the thing that caught my eye was sustainable proteins because we are so engaged in the protein conversation right now. That is something that they are working on. And how does the idea of working on it at hyperspeed make a better protein faster? And what is triple bar? Yeah, so so Triple Bar is a, a really wonderful story. Um, 
so in this particular case, we found an amazing entrepreneur who um, is one of the world's experts in microfluidics and had a number of discussions with him. And because he's an amazing technologist and, and talked through what problems could he apply his technology to. And we came up with the idea of, of what as we describe here, bioengineering, bioengineering for hyperspeed. So in a nutshell, nature solves every problem through evolution. And what, but a lot of times we just can't wait, you know, tens of thousands of years or hundreds of hundreds of thousands or even millions or billions of years. And so what we need is a technology that can speed up evolution. So the way that we make a lot of these um, proteins is through using a vehicle. It's a cell. Um, it can be a yeast cell, bacteria cell, or human cell to make those proteins for us. And particularly, and I think there's a huge focus on, as we've talked about today, food proteins and, um, and using um, novel means to do that. So to make a, a pro, to make a food protein, you need a cell. You can engineer a cell to do that. But then what you have to do is find the cell that's doing it the best, meaning it's making the most protein, and um, and we can take that cell and we can scale up so the protein's produced in huge fat. But one of the challenges is finding that needle in the haystack, that cell that's making that protein the best. And so what Triple Bar does is they screen 10 million cells a day in tiny little droplets, it's the microfluidics component, to find the cell that is making the pro that protein at the highest level titer and is going to be the best one that you can ultimately take and scale up so that you can then therefore manufacture it at scale and sell it as a food product. And so this is a really critical element for um, a lot of the food companies because as you said at the outset they want to make meat cell they want they could make meat cells fat cells they could make uh, other uh, bioactives but at the end of the day you're engineering a cell to do that and you have to find the optimum optimum cell no matter what protein that you're making so this company will work with every uh, companies from the large dairy producers to um, and to potentially make their proteins to these little these startups that are really trying to change the world that we th how we think about food in the sense of we are going to eat um, fish or chicken or other things that are actually just it's not based off an animal it's based off a protein that's made so they're really trying to help enable this whole movement and we thought this was a really important company to build because we saw so many companies wanting to build new um, food products um, that were not using animals and felt that we needed like an intel inside we needed a company that could really enable this whole space so that's why building this company was very important to us. It's an interesting idea. I'm I'm always caught by, you know, in the in the food space, you know, Barat, you you said it very clearly that you know food is something that everybody needs and engages in and has. Food is also, I think, one of the most personal things that we do every day. What we eat and what we choose to eat is highly personal. It's based on what our what your immediate family eats. What is eaten regionally, what, you know, religious or faith beliefs you have, you know, prescribed for you to eat, what country you live in, what's available to you in the grocery store, are you sheltering in place or not? There are so many things that impact what we eat on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, 
it, it, it's kind of staggering to think about solving something for 7 billion people, <laughs> given that there's, you know, 7 billion different paradigms of, of what people want to eat. Rachel, I'll ask you this question. Do you think that TPB is creating trends or following trends? You talked earlier at the beginning of the show about, you know, consumers needing to want to like to desire. If you're creating companies based on, you know, a research, a point of view, and best foot forward, is that creating trends or riding a wave or early adoption? Where do you think you are in terms of the public influence journey? Hmm. That's a great question. I would say that we are creating demand and products that don't yet exist. Um, and and this is again consider the source here. I you know I usually am sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley, and you you need to be very aware that in that ecosystem, you're not just doing fo focus groups and trying to determine what what people today want. Um, you know, if that were the case, then Elon Musk would have created another cheaper, bigger gas guzzler. And Pat Brown at Impossible Foods would have just created cheaper beef that's even fattier and, you know, emits more methane because people in general don't actually care about that. It doesn't purchase, it doesn't inform their purchase decisions, right? So, so in the same way, Dave Friedberg and all of us at the production board are really trying to understand what is the fundamental problem um, facing humanity. Uh, one of them is the fact that our agriculture system is by far the biggest contributor to greenhouse gases, and it is also the biggest consumer and polluter of water and land. It's also one of, along with the energy industry itself, the biggest users of energy, right? And so it falls on us to create products that are fundamentally more efficient. Um, and the only way to do that is to create products that get massive traction in markets, right? I mean, people have to want these products. So we don't really think of it as, you know, are we going to follow the trends or lead them? It's more like, what are the fundamental problems that we need to figure out and how do we leverage consumer demand, capitalism, you know, the meritocracy of ideas to actually get this to scale up in order to have those impacts on systems of production? It's certainly an interesting idea and something that I've asked everyone since March of 2020 when we started recording the show remotely because we were sheltering in place because of the corona pandemic. If I'm standing in the grocery store and I'm looking to buy food for my family for dinner that night, and maybe I don't have a lot of choices, maybe it's supply chain, maybe it's other things. We certainly, you know, what's available to us is impacted, as we know, by so many things. And I think for a lot of people, they became acutely aware of that in a very new and real way in 2020, is the person in the grocery store who really just wants food for their family that night for dinner, are they ticking through a list of the products that are in front of them and analyzing all these things, the environment, the gas guzzling, the cows, the water, or if I'm faced with just one or two choices, am I just going to take something? How, how, how impactful are those 
ideas when it comes down to what's in my hand. I mean, I, I personally don't think that the average consumer, um, even those who say they're environmentalists, I don't think that they care profoundly about it when they're at the point of sale. Right. I mean, I just am here at Future Food Tech, which is supposed to be this grand reunion of people who really are trying to apply technology to make sustainable foods. Yet I've gone to several receptions that were full of salmon and beef and other things. Right. Like so. So people just don't really make decisions on based on sustainability, for example. They do make decisions based on whether what they buy can deliver a quality of life upgrade. And again, if it happens to be sustainable, all the better, right? But that's not their primary purchase decision, whether that's cars or food or clothes or anything else. They just, they, it's on us um, in the industry, in private equity, in capital markets, capital deployment, in the auto industry, elsewhere, to, to give consumers a choice that represents a huge upgrade. And we have to make it more sustainable. It turns out that making something more sustainable also means making it much more efficient. So in the case of food, uh, because we're making products that don't require animal agriculture, they represent a gigantic reduction in land, water, energy, carbon. Um, but that should also be a translation to improvement for the customer. Well, I think you may raise a good point that people are not necessarily paying attention to that. And I, I would also throw in that even people who are paying attention to different points on the environment, food production, distribution, how it gets made, who's farmed it, all those types of things, there's so much information to consume and it's it's hard to stay on top of everything. It's a very, very complex system out there that if even if you're trying or wanting to make good choices, sometimes it's hard to even know what those are. I'm going to ask one last question, Teresa, because I'm, I'm looking at you as like our scientist for the day. Um, another interesting thing in terms of public perception, and you know, it's obviously so important. Public perception is so important in terms of what survives in business and in this world and what doesn't. In, certainly in the United States and, and other parts of the world, there's a lot about genetically modified organisms, GMO, GMO foods, things that are genetically modified in the lab. And that has sort of a is a is a red light for many, many years of oh, something that's GMO is bad. We want not genetically modified plants. And we want things that are not manipulated in a lab and then grown. There's something very, very bad about that. But I note that in Bordeaux, famously, one of the most amazing, you know, wine growing agricultural regions of the world. They've been grafting plants together for years and years to make different vines, you know, hundreds of years. And that's sort of genetically modifying something. Certainly, a lot of building proteins in a lab is, in some respects, creating something new. Or if you're altering things, is there a new, you know, is there a, a new science or a new lab produced food that's okay, that's different from the GMO food that we don't want because it's bad? Or is GMO labeling a certain group within that sphere? Or how do people navigate that? It's a really great question. Um, you know, and I guess from my perspective, I, I, I take the same perspective as you, Jennifer, in the sense that 
um, as you point out, people have been grafting um, vines uh, in in uh, in the wine business for, for many years to, to get the best grapes. And if you really think about it, what we often do to get the, the best traits in terms of plants is it's, bre- it's breeding. Again, it's evolution. It's like, okay, I, I have these uh, two amazing, um, uh, I've got the, this really great hearty strawberry, and then I have this really red one, and I'm going to breed them until I get the absolutely best hearty, juicy red strawberry. Um, we've been doing that for years and years. So I think for me, the genetically modifying foods is just a faster way to get at what's a natural process from evolution um, by doing the modifications. And and um, and so I, I so I from my perspective, it's just a different way of achieving um, what we ultimately want, and often a better food product, and and doing it um, uh, more quickly than nature could do it. You know, I think the inter- another interesting aspect of this will be is um, we we make a bunch of proteins um, or our bioactives via um, using cell types, et cetera. Is that a genetically modified food? I, well, I mean, we basically took the cells and we're making the same thing nature makes, but we're we're doing it in a lab. Um, and I would argue it's much better for the environment doing it that way. So I, I think it's going to, in a nutshell, Jennifer, I think it's going to lead to a new definition of what is genetically modified because we're taking cells out of animals and culturing them in a lab. Do we genetically modify them? No, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Actually, we didn't modify them in the sense that we manipulated the genes, but we took them out of the animal and we're growing them there. So, you know, so I really think that we just have to take this, we have to look at the world very differently through a different lens um, in terms of how we think about uh, modified foods in the future, because I think a lot of the future will be um, thinking of new ways of production and that, that will maybe modifying this, uh, modifying the cells, but it also may be just growing them somewhere else. So, Well, at some point in time, there was something that was a newfangled thing that people looked at a little skeptically that now has become a part of your everyday life and, and things like cornstarch. You know, cornstarch mm-hmm. didn't always exist. Baking soda, those types of things that probably lots of us use all the time that are sitting in our cupboards right now. I mean, those are science projects, you know, but we need them. We like them. They make all kinds of tasty things for us. So, you know, part of it is also just something new and figuring out what it is and, and going forward. There are certainly a lot of things con- to consider today, almost too many things, and sometimes it can be overwhelming. Um, but here on Tech Bites, we hope to. Um, have conversations that maybe bring a little bit of light to an idea and maybe uh, deconstruct or demystify things a little bit. We may have to do a GMO show at some point just to talk about that because it is one of those things that is um, within the spectrum of, of things that are scientific, which are happening. And maybe it's not exactly what you think it is, but certainly when you pick up a item in the grocery store and you look at it, you'll see a tag that says non-GMO which if you need a tag for it at the FDA, then obviously people care about that. And it's important to know what that means. Um, I want to thank everyone from the production board, tpb.co is where they are at online. You can take a look at all the different things they're doing. And if you are a science person or a tech person or a finance person, um, they have a lot of companies and a lot of different things that are going on. Um, you know, I think it's always interesting if you're interested in a company or a business. And I have a lot of questions from listeners sometimes about people looking to move into the food tech space. 
all of these websites have career buttons. Every company on the internet nowadays has a career button. And if you're interested in like looking at things, you should hit that career button and see what's happening in your area and in your field. Um, you never know. You know, it's all about network and community. I want to thank Rachel Conrad for coming back again on Tech Bytes. We love that. Repeat guests. It's always nice to have voices to follow over time. Uh, she is the chief brand officer at TPB. She's great. If you want to listen to her episode, lastly, it was episode 248. Bharat Vasan, president and COO, thank you for joining us from beautiful Monterey. I think you have the best locale today. And Risa Stack, general manager at TPB. Um, everyone has a great point of view, and it's so dense, the materials that we're, they're talking about, and so dense, the problems that they're trying to solve. But ultimately, Tech Bytes, the story is we use technology to get to a delicious real-life experience. And I think imagining, reimagining Earth and the world so that everyone gets to that real-life delicious food experience every day in a way that makes them happy and fulfilled and sustains them is something that we all can agree is a great thing to work on. I'm Jennifer Leutze, and this is Tech Bytes. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.